Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're we're dealing with the with with the life of of, of Abraham, with Abraham, our father, and uh, what it is that he brought to the world. And there there are a few things that I, I'd like to discuss because I think that um, most people don't really fully appreciate what monotheism is. Um, monotheism is this amazing radical theology. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing, system of thought. And for the most part, um, I think that people just think that what it means is there's one God, and that's it. It's sort of like an idea. But monotheism goes much further than that. Monotheism, monotheism suggests that we're actually dwelling within the reality of God. Meaning to say that that everything that we interact with is, is an extension of godliness. That God fills the entire world and then exists dimensions beyond it. Remember, it's very important always to keep in mind that we don't say in Torah that the world equals God and God equals the world. We don't say that. We say that God fills the entire world and then exists dimensions beyond. So, so but the idea of one God, the idea of one God, is something that isn't an idea. That, that's, that's the point that I'm, I'm trying to suggest. So we're going to go more deeply into it. That we're actually dwelling amidst the reality of God. And so that might sound a little bit abstract at this point still, but we're going to go into it in, in a more detailed sense. So what I'd like to focus in on is this very interesting, uh, actually amazing uh, encounter between Abraham Avinu between Abraham and these three wayfarers, these three sort of like travelers in the desert that, uh, that he gives hospitality to. And what the Torah says about them, and we want to learn specifically from the commentary of the, the Malbum, but, but basically what happens is, just to set the scene, is that Abraham is sitting by the opening of his tent, and we're going to get into what that means more, because that in itself is actually a far-out concept. What does it mean, the opening of his tent? Because remember, Abraham had a tent that was open on all four sides. Okay, now I heard this from Reb Shlomo. Uh, I, I, I've never run across this teaching inside, but if Reb Shlomo said it, it's from a good source. He said that, that Abraham's tent was open on all four sides, which meant that whatever direction you, you approach the tent from, while you were traveling through the desert, you had the sense that you were welcome and that you were coming in through the front door. So that, that in itself is a, is a very beautiful idea. Yitzchak, his son, not only wasn't it open on all four sides, the, door, the front door was closed and there was a guard at the door. And if you knocked down the door, the guard would say, yes, can I help you? So you have here two very interesting different approaches. Right? And then, of course, you have Yaakov, who is the integration of both of these approaches. And, in fact, on a very amazing sort of spiritual, Kabbalistic level, Yaakov is taking the chesed, the kindness which Abraham embodied, and the gvura, the, the strength that Yitzchak embodied, and he's combining both of these things. And in fact, before the introduction of Yaakov, who's the combination of both of these things, what you have is the Akedah. You have the binding of Yitzchak. 
Meaning to say, think of this as a spiritual construct for a moment. You have the chesed of Abraham being bound to the gevorah of Yitzchak. In other words, you have both of these sort of competing spiritual extremes bound together so that you can have a reconciliation between these two forces, and that balance comes out as Yaakov. So, so on one level, that's what's going on in terms of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is really these two spiritual extremes of Chesed and Gvura coming together in the form of Teferit, in the form of Emes, which is, which is Yaakov, which is Jacob. So, so going forward, you have Abraham sitting at the opening of his tent in the heat of the day, the extreme heat of the day, because at this point, Abraham is 99 years old and he's just circumcised himself. And it's the third day after the circumcision, so they say he's in the most pain. And so what God does as a, as a kindness to Abraham, as a chesed to Abraham, is he makes it super hot so that, so that there shouldn't be anyone traveling out that day. So that he shouldn't have to, so to, so to speak, like um, exhaust himself doing the mitzvah of hospitality. But God then later sees that he's actually in such pain that he can't do the mitzvah of hospitality. So, so God sends him some, some, some visitors. Okay, so now there's a debate among the rabbis. When he sees these three visitors coming toward him, does he know that they're angels or does he think that they're not angels? Does he think that they're human beings? So, so, so there are two different ways of understanding this, this, this episode in the, in the Torah. From the, we're going to concentrate on the one that he actually knew that they were spiritual beings in a moment, from the Malbum. But, just so you know, the other approach is also very legitimate, that he didn't know that they were angels, that he thought that they were just regular people. And within that, it's very instructive to note that they appeared before him as idol-worshipping Arabs. So, in other words, there are a lot of people who are very hospitable. If you have a million dollars, you're absolutely welcome into my home. Anyone who has a million dollars is welcome into my home. My door is open to everyone who has a million dollars. I'm very hospitable. So this is one form of hospitality. Another form of hospitality is Abraham Avinu who sees three idol-worshipping Arabs. And in his sickness, recovering from you know, his, his circumcision is running to give them hospitality. So that's really just, uh, just a tiny inkling of, of who Abraham was. Okay. But now, I really want to focus in on what the, what, what, how the Malbum understands this. And this is going to give us a deeper look into what I was suggesting before. Understanding, really... How amazing what it means to actually believe in one God actually means on a here and now level for all of us in our own lives. So, I've given you this example uh, before. And uh, so, so, pardon me if you've, if you've heard it, but it's, it's good to hear again. And it's an important bit of homework to be able to fully appreciate what the Malbum is about to say. So, let me just review this idea, Okay. So the idea is something uh, related to the concept of tzimtzum. And tzimtzum basically, bless you, 
Simpson basically says that before the world was created, all that existed was God. And that what God did was, he took an aspect of himself, he created a space within himself, it's almost like if you want to think of it uh, in terms of um, human anatomy, it's almost as though he made a womb, he made a place within himself, and then he shone a light, a ray of light called the Kav, into this vacated space, and that that light became more and more solid until the physical world was created. And if you think about that, that's actually very much parallel to the way a human being is created if you think of the anatomy of that. And furthermore, a person, each human being, is called a world. Because it says in the Talmud that anyone who saves one person, it's like they created the world. They saved the whole world. So you see that the creation of the world, the entire universe, and the creation of each individual human being actually are very, very parallel in terms of how it was done. But what I want to focus in on is this sort of second stage aspect of Tzimtzum, which is when God shines this light, this ray of light, and that this ray of light goes from the spiritual along this one continuum into the material. And the example that I always like to give for us to kind of try to grasp this, what this means exactly, is, you know, how do, we, how do we look at the world around us? You're sitting right now, you're driving, or whatever it is, you're walking. Look at the world around you. How do you understand all of this space that exists around you right now? So, so with this in mind, let's just look into like this totally elementary science example. So you've got ice, and then ice melts into water, and then water becomes water vapor when it gets heated up. So it looks like three completely different forms. Ice is solid, water is liquid, and then you've got water vapor, which is gaseous. Maybe you can't even see it. Okay? And yet, there's a commonality among all three different things there. Ice, the molecule is H2O. Water, the molecule is H2O. And water vapor, which you can see or not see, is also H2O. So in other words, it's all the same substance, and yet the water vapor gets condensed, the molecules get closer, and it becomes water, actual water. Then those molecules get condensed, and they get closer together, and it becomes something physical. It becomes ice. And that's one continuum. Now, the reason why I think that's... So, how does that parallel the creation of the world? God took his light, which was totally spiritual, and he condensed it and condensed it until it became the physical universe. Why this is so important, this is so important for us to really understand fully and to just hammer into our brains, because, because it tells us two important lessons. One is that all physicality is condensed spirituality. That's, that's big point number one. Big point number two is it tells us that the material and the spiritual world are not two totally different, unrelated ideas. That it's one idea along the same continuum. Okay. Now, with this in mind, let's look at the Malbum and try to understand what he's saying about the three, the three visitors that Avraham Avinu got. And the Malbum looks at the words of the Pasuk, which say the following. It says, So it says that Avraham raised his eyes, 
That's part one of the Pasuk. He raised his eyes, he looked up, and then it says, he saw, and then it says, and behold, there were three men standing over him. Okay? So, so what the Malvin says is the following, and now that we've actually gone through this whole um, Tzimtzum um, preparation, and understanding how things condense, we're going to understand very clearly what the, what the Malbim is saying. He says that, that just I'll give you the, 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 uh, the end first, just in, in one sentence. The Malbim is saying something outrageous, actually. He's saying that what Abraham saw was angels form before his eyes into human beings. All right, and now, now that you hear that, let's go in and look in the language itself, and you'll see how it supports it. It says, first he looked up. All right? So when he looked up, first he saw this angelic energy. He saw pure spirituality. And then it uses the phrase, and then he saw. What did he see? He saw that pure energy condensing down into like a golem-shaped human-type form. And then it says, three men standing, beside, standing in front of him. Meaning to say that at that point, he actually saw them materialize into human beings. And they stood above him, it says. He saw them standing above him. Meaning to say, that even when he saw them materialize from, the, from pure angelic energy into the rough shape of human beings, into actual human beings, he still saw this energy, their spiritual energy, standing above them. So in other words, the continuum, the spiritual continuum, was still extant in front of them. So not only did he see them form into human beings, but while they took the shape of human beings in front of him, he still saw their spiritual energy above them. So that continuum remained revealed. So this is amazing, actually. And he points out, the Malbum points out, that the language here is very unique. That when, normally speaking, people see angels, or they're revealed to be angels, it normally says first, he saw them, whoever it is, saw the angel, meaning to say that the, they first appear to people who see angels throughout the Torah as, as physical presences, and then it says, and then the person looked up. And then the person realized, oh, this, this person who I thought was a person is actually looking up. I see this spiritual root to this person. Ah, I see it's an angel right now. But what was unique about Abraham was, first he looked up. First he saw the angelic energy coming down, and then he saw them shaped into human beings. So he was able to, in his greatness, participate in the early steps of the process that other people are not, even people who have been on the level of interacting with angels, were not privy to. Okay. So, so again... Here you see an example, and this is a, a, a small case of what's going on in terms of the reality that we dwell in, of where you see energy materializing into matter. And again, the world around us is a larger example of that. 
This is all energy around us that's materialized into matter. Now, this next step, so what do you do with this? What, what, do, you do, what do you do with this teaching, right? This is great for Avram, but what about me, right? What do I, so so what, do, what does this mean to me? So, so the, next, the next thing that happens is that it says, Abraham, this is now uh, chapter 18, verse 3. It says, Abraham said, My Lord, if it please you, do not like, go away and come and let me give you hospitality. Okay. Now, what's really striking about this, and the Malbum keys in on it, is that he, he calls them by the name of God. You see, there's a, there's a name of God which is spelled Aleph, Dalid, Nun, and Yud. We talk, it, we talk about it a lot. And that usually means it's a, it's, a, it's a name of God which reflects God's mastery over this world. It's pronounced Adonai. Okay? Now, in, in, in modern Hebrew, there's a variant of that. We say Adoni which means my master, because this word refers to God's mastery over the world. But Adoni means would be translated in English as mister. So it's a sign of respect and an honor to give to someone, but it's not a name of God. It's a variant of a name of God, but it's not a name of God. But what Abraham Avinu is doing right here is something very, very amazing. He's bowing down before these people and he's calling them Adonai. He's using the name of God when he's bowing down before them. And this would be very mysterious. Why would he use the name of God bowing down before three strangers, three human beings? Except for the fact that Abraham knew that they were angels, that they were extensions of God. And he saw the godliness that was absolutely manifest in them. And so he bowed down before them and use the name of God. And then, this is really the, he didn't think they were God, but, but now you have to stay tuned for this next step and then it will all fit together. And, and by the way, I want to read directly from this, uh, this translation of the Malbum. This book, I think, is out of print. Um, it's called The Patriarchs. It's translated by Tzvi Fair. Z-V-I, capital F, A-I-E-R. And it's just the Malbum translated on a few Parshas. But um, I compared this translation with another translation of the Malbum, and this one is, 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 is far, far better. Far, far better. In fact, I, I tried to find these thoughts that I'm telling you in the other translation, and you'd never get what the Malbum was actually saying. So, so this is a good one, but I think this is a fairly hard-to-get book. But anyway... Um, maybe you can track it down if you're interested. So, so I'm going to read to you now. This is uh, page 120. So this is, this is explaining the Malbum's explanation of why he's bowing down to them and addressing them as God. You ready? It has always been characteristic of those complete human beings cleaving to God that even while conversing with others, including kings of the earth, their principal words were directed to God. So here's what he's saying. They always spoke as if two audiences on two levels, as it is written, and it goes on. So, so just, just understand what he's saying there. He's saying that the greatest people in the world, right, 
the way they go through life is, since they understand that people are on some level extensions of godliness, and that whoever you interact with, on a very fundamental level, you're interacting with God. You're not God. I'm not God. None of us are God. And yet, we're all sort of extensions, because we have a godly soul within us, we're sort of extensions of godliness, if you will. If you can make that distinction in your mind between, say, the ocean and a wave. The wave is sort of an extension of the ocean. The wave is not the ocean. But the wave is an extension of the ocean. So our souls are not the ocean. Our souls are like a wave. But they're an extension of godliness. So what, what the Malbum is saying is that the greatest people in the world, the way they go through life, because they understand that they're interacting with godliness, because of this monotheistic idea that we dwell within godliness, that they understand when you talk to another person, they have two conversations at the same time. They're talking to you and they're talking to God at the same time. Now, this, is in a, this is an amazing level. This is an amazing level to hold two simultaneous conversations at the same time. And so the example that I always think of, if you want to try to apply this in your own life, is going to, say, Starbucks, right? And you say to the, 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 the cashier at Starbucks, you say, please, may I have a cup of coffee? So simultaneously, what you're doing is praying to God for a cup of coffee, and at the same time requesting from this human being a cup of coffee. This is, this is what we're talking about. This is, this, is a, a, this is a hugely expansive way of understanding and interacting and going through life. Understanding that your entire life, everything that you do, every, every, everything that you deal with is an interface with God. That you're constantly, in all of your actions, having an ongoing conversation with God. An amazing, it's an amazing level. And with this in mind, I want to give you my explanation of what it means that Abraham's tent was open on all four sides. I want to apply this idea. And, and in order to do it, I, I have to just take a step backwards and just tell you about this thought that I had about Noah. I'm not sure if I shared this or not. And you can take it or leave it, but I just want to put it out there. Maybe what was problematic with Noah, maybe why Noah, maybe, I don't know, was unsuccessful. Because we know that he was supposed to send out this message to everyone and to get everyone sort of like to, to rethink the way they were going through life. And... And he was building this ark over a period of 120 years. And people were supposed to come up to him. It was a conversation piece. People were supposed to come up to him and say, why are you building this ark? And then he would say, well, you know, God's going to bring a flood and all the rest. But we know that no one he talked to got on the boat. And the flood came. So seemingly this was not successful at all. I mean, at all. So what I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is maybe... What Noah should have done, who am I to say, right? But I'm just throwing it out there as an idea. Maybe what Noah should have done was to ask them, help him build the boat. If they had asked them, if he had asked them to help him build the boat, 
then I think a very important psychological barrier could have been broken down. Because I think that maybe what was coming across on some level, and again, this is all speculation, this is just me trying to wrap my mind around the text, was, I'm building this boat, I'm okay, you're not. Or perhaps a level of superiority, unintended, I'm fine, you're, whoo, boy, you don't even know what's coming your way. You know? So, that can create a distance between people which can be an impenetrable barrier. Like, you know something, if that's how you feel about me, if that's the level of respect that you have about me, if that's the level of love that you have about me, then what do I need you for? Perhaps, 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 that's what was coming across and why Noah wasn't able to get through to anyone. All right, now, all of the rabbis have been comparing Noah and Abraham since the beginning. These are the two big points of contrast. So with that in mind, I want to suggest, get back to this idea of Abraham's tents, tent being open on all four sides. You see, what does it mean to have your tent open? That means that a barrier has been removed. That means that you remove this concept of the outside and the inside. That means that when someone's welcome into your home, all of a sudden they're in your home, they're in a different domain, and they realize that there's a continuum between the outside and the inside. And there is no blockage, there is no barrier between the two. Remember, what did Abraham do? He restored the concept of monotheism, of one God. What else did he do? He eradicated on a very fundamental level this concept of idol worship and the idea that you need to go through a mediator in order to get to God. That there's an in-between step between all of us and God. He got rid of this. That's the idea of the open door. The door that remains open at all times. In other words, that blockage, that concept of idol worship has been removed. It's not there. Not only that, but you realize that God transcends all boundaries Inside and outside, God is everywhere. You know, many, many years ago, uh, uh, Neshama Karlbach, the, the eldest daughter of Reb Shlomo, came to the Happy Minion and, and spoke. And, and I remember one of the things that she said was, she said she was talking about her father, uh, Reb Shlomo, and she said that people compare him to a lot of people. People compare him to the Baal Shem Tov. And um, she said that I personally, when I think of him, think of him mostly like Abraham Avinu. That he was traveling the world introducing God to people. And that really he was like alone. It was just him. Just like by Abraham, it was really just Abraham. Well, Sarah was there as well, but there was a there was this individual quest on a very profound level that was, that was going on. And so, so I want to tell you a, an experience that I had with Reb Shlomo, which, which points to all of these things. Now, Abraham was famous for many things, but one of the things he was famous for was his hospitality, as we've been talking about, this idea of the open tent. Now, in Hebrew, the way you say the mitzvah of hospitality is hachnasis orachim. 
Okay, you just have to remember that phrase because I'm going to use it again in another context. Hachnasis orachim, which means to welcome guests. Okay? So I, I had an experience with Reb Shlomo. Um, it was a whole kind of like adventure that I, that I had with him. Um, I actually wrote it up for an issue of Kol Chevra many years ago where we went to see the Dalai Lama together. And, um, and uh, it's a whole long story. Um, but anyway, as we were driving back, uh, we were taking a cab back uh, and we were on 77th Street and Broadway. And we were standing on Broadway outside and he turned to me and he said, he said, Davido, I want to do the mitzvah of hachnasis orchim, right? Hospitality to guests. Now that's what you do in your home. We're standing on Broadway and 77th Street. He says to me, I want, and he knows, believe me, he knows the definition of hachnasis orchim. That's a very elementary term, okay? He says to me, I want to do the mitzvah of hachnasis orchim. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? So, so I never forgot that because it was such a strange way of saying it, right? It was like if he, if he, first of all, why would he have to label the mitzvah? Let's just say, say to me, do you want a cup of coffee or can I buy you a cup of coffee? Or if he needed to label the mitzvah, say, you know, I want to do a chesed. Chesed means kindness. I want to do a chesed. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? But to use such a peculiar term, which absolutely doesn't apply in the conventional sense, I want to do the mitzvah of hachnasus orchim, hospitality, which you do in your home, while we're standing on Broadway and 77th Street, shows you this concept of Abraham Avinu. This concept of the eradication of the inside and the outside. That there are no boundaries to where God is. And that's why it says, on a very deep level, that, re- that, that doing the mitzvah of hospitality is greater than receiving the divine presence. Because what you're doing is you're making the divine presence manifest in this way which, which really makes people understand just how omnipresent God really is. So, my 11-year-old was doing a homework assignment. He wanted, he wanted some help. He says he, he, he had to do um, uh, a, a brief list, three examples of primary sources, three examples of secondary sources. So, so we were trying to brainstorm together. So I said, well, a primary source would be like, um, so he said, what about Anne Frank's diary? I said, great, that's, that's a primary source, absolutely, because it's, it's, not, it's, 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 it's not a book about Anne Frank, it's her actual diary. That's a primary source. I said, great. Then I said, what about like, um, like video footage of an event, like Hurricane Sandy, right? Like to actually see the, the, the event itself, that would be, that would be a primary source. So, so we put down video footage. Then we talked about, uh, then we gave talking to a witness, someone who is actually there, having like a conversation with someone who is actually there. That would also be a primary source. All right. Secondary sources are things about the thing. Right. So 
So, so a biography of Anne Frank, that's someone trying to piece together her life. That's a secondary source. All right? A documentary film about uh, an event. Again, that, that would be a, a description of the event. That's not the thing itself. It, it might include little video clips from the thing, but, but the documentary itself would not be a primary source. So what's my point? My point is, is that when you're alive, you are dealing with the primary source of God. You're not dealing with secondary sources. This is monotheism. This is the amazing thing that wherever you go, you're, you're, you're working within the primary source. This is, this, is, this is a level of closeness that we all have that most people seem to be absolutely blind to. Just blind to. That you're actually, you're actually working within the primary source, which is Hashem Yisbarach, God the Blessed One. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that people intuitively feel how far away God is. What they don't understand and the greatest Kiddush Hashem, the greatest sanctification of God's name a person can do is to make people understand how close God is. You know, ever since I heard that, that's, that's, that's the only thing I'm ever really trying to do with my life. Honestly. Just to try to communicate that. Just to try to live that. Just for people to understand that point. Reb Shlomo had his 18th yurtzeit this year, 18 years since he was nifter, passed into the next world, right? Whatever that means. And my son is in Israel right now, and he went to his gravesite on, on the day of the yurtzeit. And I can report to you something, I think, very special. He said there were over 400 people there. And it's a small, it's a small area. Over 400 people there, many, many, many of them with musical instruments, playing and all singing together by his grave. Now, I have to tell you something. I don't know about other religions. I'm ignorant about other religions. But I can tell you one thing. 400, more than 400 people, over 400 people, he said, packed into an Orthodox Jewish cemetery with musical instruments having a concert, is not normal. This is not normal. This is completely unique. This is unique. And this is happening already 18 years after he left the world. Not at his funeral itself. Not a year later, where there's some people who still happily remember him. This is almost two decades later. And it keeps on getting bigger. It's growing and it's growing. They set up amplifiers, and everyone's singing together. If you've been to his gravesite, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. One of the really remarkable things about it is, it's a little thing, but it's, it's just, just unique. Over his gravesite, you have um, two, two poles and a glass case with um, books. You have like a library there. And you, you have like some prayer books and you have some Hasidic books 
so people can sit and learn. I don't know anyone who has at their gravesite a library. And, and why? Because during his lifetime, wherever Reb Shlomo went, he traveled with suitcases full of books. I held these suitcases myself. I, I know that this is true. They were heavy. He traveled with, with, in fact, I'll tell you something. The only time, well, the only time I felt that I, I ever really, that he really got mad at me was he asked me to bring back um, an edition of the Beis Yaakov. The Beis Yaakov was the second Ishbitzer Rebbe. So he was the Ishbitzer Rebbe. It's a, it's, it's a hard to get book. It's not, now maybe it's reprinted some more, but it's, it's hard to get. And he learned very deeply from it. And I was about to get on a plane and he asked me to bring it back from Israel. I guess he left it in Israel or something like that. And I had been running around all day. I had been running around my entire trip. I hadn't gotten hardly any sleep the entire trip. And I, I was due at the airport. And I had to go to the other side of the city in order to get this book. I thought I was going to miss my flight. So I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bring it back for him, for him. And when I told him that I didn't have it, he was really upset. He was like, I need this book. It's like... I need this book. I need, you know, he used to talk about how a person has to be on the level where they need Torah to live. It's not just, oh, I study Torah, or isn't Torah interesting, or you know what, one of these days I'm going to study Torah. He said, no, you have to need it to live. He needed that book to live. It wasn't just, oh, okay, so I'll learn something else. So, when you're attached on that level to Sfarim, then I guess someone builds a bookshelf for you over your, over your grave. I guess there's a pretty direct connection between those two things. If you're that connected. All right. I want to... I want to transition into another thought. Um, and uh, I'm sure it all ties together. Um, but this is just something that I've been thinking about and I, I, I just uh, wasn't able to make a connection that I was satisfied with until now. And I'm sure this can just be the beginning thought for more uh, advanced thinking on the subject. But let me just just lay it out for you. So, we've been studying this uh, Pasuk of, of Breshis, the very first Pasuk in the Torah. Um, in the beginning, or better put, with beginnings, out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. So, the Balaturim, one of our greatest Torah commentators of about a thousand years ago, the Balaturim points out that this, that this phrase... Breshis bara Elohim es ha-shemayim the first verse of the Torah, correlates with another verse in the Torah, um, which is the verse before God gives us the, the actual Torah itself, before he gives us the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And of course, the Ten Commandments is a microcosm of the entire Torah. 
This verse, it's, uh, if you want to see it, it's um, chapter 20, verse 1. It says, V'yadaber Elohim es kol hadavarim ha'elelemor. So the Balaturim, and, and that's translated as, God spoke all these statements saying. So that's a pretty innocuous sounding verse, right? God spoke all these sayings, all these statements saying. Okay, that's the whole verse. But the Balaturim points out that that verse has the same number of words and the same number of letters as Breshis bara Elohim Hashemayim Vesa'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 28 letters and 7 words. Okay. So, what's, what's, what's the connection? What's the connection? Well, I think, I, I'll just tell you how I understand it, okay? So, so, we know that the Torah existed before the world was created. It says... In the Talmud, 974 generations before the world was created, the Torah existed. And the Torah was given in the 26th generation. That adds up to a thousand generations. Okay? So, what does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? Right? You, you can't imagine a scroll floating in outer space because there was no time and no space. So, what does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? So, this sounds like a very mystical concept. But the reality is, is that it's a very meat and potatoes idea. And let me explain it in the following way. Let's say you're going to take a trip. You don't just show up to the airport and go and get on an airplane. Right? You know where you're going. Right? You don't just get on an airplane and go, I wonder am I going to Hawaii or am I going to Spain or am I going to Cleveland? This is going to be a really interesting trip. I wonder where this plane is taking me. Like, no one says that. Right? You know where the plane is going before you get on the plane. Not only that, you don't just get on the plane without any luggage. Right? Especially if you're going to take an extended trip. You don't just go and say, well, when I get there, I'll find out. I don't know where I'm going. But when I find out, I'll find out whether it's hot or whether it's cold, whether I need a bathing suit or an overcoat. You don't do that. You, you know where you're going, and you make preparations, and you plan accordingly. Okay. So, so it was, Kaviyocho, humanly speaking, before God created the world. Before God created the world, he didn't just create a world and say, this is interesting, let's see what happens. I hope the good guys win. That would be much better, right? He didn't, that, that wasn't it. Before God created the world, he had a very thorough intention, a very thorough plan, a very thorough vision for the world before he created the world. Just like you would have a very thorough itinerary, or sense at least, of where you were going and what you needed for where you were going before you took a trip. So God's plan for the world, before he created the world, this was the Torah as it existed before the world was created. The will and the intention and the plan that God had for the world, before he created the world, this is the Torah as it existed before the world was created. And then, this next amazing step is then God takes his will and from his will forms the world. Out of his will, he forms the world. So that the actual dimensions and laws of this world 
correlate in the deepest way and correspond to his will for the world. So to give you an example of this, people say it's not that we have an arm, and so that's why we have the mitzvah of tefillin to put on the arm. Rather, we have the mitzvah of tefillin, so God gave us an arm. In other words, God formed the world in order to correspond with his will. Okay. But the key point here is that the Torah existed before the world was created. So now, let's revisit this passage. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the Balaturim is pointing out that the verse before, before the giving of the Torah correlates with the creation of the world, the verse describing the creation of the world. Because the Torah existed before the world existed. Not only that, but it's the verse before the beginning of the giving of the Torah. Because the Torah preceded the creation of the world. There was a form of the Torah before our present form of the Torah. I hope that I'm not confusing you. I'll, I'll, I'll go over this thought again. But let me point out something else. This verse says, to translate it in English again, this verse which correlates with, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, this verse says, God spoke all of these statements saying, we know mystically speaking, how did God create the world? He spoke it into creation. Now God doesn't have a mouth, Rabbi Ari Kaplan says that what God did is he created the concept of speech, or he created speech. It's not that he has a mouth and spoke. But that in itself is far out, right? But anyway, but the point is, is that, isn't it interesting that the verse, which correlates with the creation of the world, talks about God speaking these statements, because God spoke creation into effect. Now, I had a thought during davening, and I haven't been able to work it out, but I worked it out to the point where I'm almost positive it's not correct. But the idea itself was so exciting (laughs) that I want to share the idea with you. (laughs) Because I thought, wow, if this works, I'm going to fall down on the ground, I'm going to faint right out if it works. Which is, I thought, wow, what if I took the gematria of this phrase and the gematria of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this phrase, which predates creation, so to speak, as we've explained, was the number 974 exactly larger than the other one. Well, it isn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was so excited at the idea. I was like, oh, I can't wait to do this. i got to figure this out. All right, it didn't work. But I, I didn't have time to actually figure out what the numerical difference between the two verses are. But anyway, just uh, just the thought itself I thought was kind of cool. Um, we'll stay tuned. We'll, we'll we'll do the math. We'll figure out what the difference is. Um, okay. So so what's the bottom line? <laughs> Let's just wrap it up here. The bottom line is everything's okay. Because if God fills the whole world, it's okay. It's got to be okay. It's by definition okay. You know? We, 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 have, our, we have our challenges, but we, we have so much. Every single one of us has so much. 
And I was actually just reading um, in the Atlantic, there's a, this uh, efficiency expert that they were interviewing. Um, he's got a system called GTD, getting things done, right? And one of the things that he was talking about was that one of the differences between our age in terms of the anxiety that a lot of us live with on a, on a daily basis is because in previous generations, people were actually much more um, survival-oriented. They, they had to actually survive. I thought this was very interesting. That, 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 and they had to make decisions. Do I go here or do I go there? And, and then, do, you know, because they didn't want to be eaten or they didn't want to be burned or, 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 or shot or whatever it was. So you had to make decisions. And he said that in today's society, our lives aren't really in danger for the most part. For the most part. And so, so, so we, aren't, we aren't having to make these type of decisions. So there are all these sort of second level type of things like, do I make that call? Do I not make that call? Do I answer this email? Do I not answer this email? And so all of these type of, you know, decisions are mentally exhausting and they're occupying our brains. And, and, and there's some research that's come out recently about willpower that, that interestingly, they've been able to quantify this, that, that making a decision it actually um, takes some energy. You would think, like, making a decision, I'm doing it in my head. That's like, like turning on a light switch or off a light switch doesn't really, I mean, I guess technically it takes some energy, but not really. You know, just anyone, even someone very weak could turn on a light switch or, or, or turn it off. But actually making a decision actually requires a bit of strength. And that if you're making decisions all day, at a certain amount of time, after a certain period, you actually don't have the strength to make those decisions. And so it's very important to have like carbohydrates or whatever it is or, or sugar or whatever it is in order to have the fuel to continue to make decisions. Like if you're involved in the creative field, at a certain point, you know, creativity is all decisions. Should he walk in in this scene? Should he not walk in this scene? At what point should he? You know, how should the scene be arched? Should he say this word? Should he not say this word? What word should he say? He's got to say something. What is he going to say? You know, these are all, ah, all decisions that a person has to make. This, this exhausts a person. And so we're more exhausted than we've ever been. We're more exhausted than we've ever been. Because when we were in survival mode, we didn't have a chance to say, well, here's the lion. Should I go up the tree? Should I read a book? Maybe I should let the lion eat me. Maybe the lion's nice. He's not going to eat me. You didn't. You said, run! Where? Anywhere! That was it. Then that was, you could put a check by that on the to-do list. Run, check. You know, that, that was done. Now we're not in that place. Okay, so... So anyway... I, I, I just let me just wrap it up with um, with uh, so 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 just to finish that point. I'm sorry. I, I remember I gave I, I, I gave a talk one time and I was really I don't remember what's in the talk, but I, I was really happy with the title. The title was "What if I'm not in a crisis?" <laughs> a lot of us, a lot of us, we 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 almost need to be in a crisis. And I think 
I don't know why exactly. I mean, you, we could think about that for a while. Why, why, why do people feel this need to be in a crisis? I don't know. I don't know. But relatively speaking, at, at least in terms of human history, these are cushy times. <laughs> these are not crisis times. Okay, they come with their own set of challenges. But, but most of us are not in a legitimate crisis. We should just appreciate that for a moment. Um, it doesn't mean we're not overwhelmed, though. Okay. Now, speaking of being overwhelmed, I spoke with a survivor of Hurricane Sandy yesterday. I just want to share with you a couple of things that he said, because they were very inspiring to me. First of all, this man was probably in his... He was strong and, you know, very upright and all the rest, but he was probably, I would guess, in his early 70s. And, um, you know, he must be a tzaddik. This person must be a tzaddik because the water went within three doors of his home. There was flooding all around him. The water stopped right before his home. Three doors from his home. Can you imagine? Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. You know? The person, the person that the water stopped at was the tzaddik and he got... Yeah, yeah, okay. Also good. Also good. Or, or he had the good sense to be neighbors with the tzaddik. I, I accept that. Uh, I accept that. So, so but here's the, here's the actual... Uh, well, he was talking about true, trees that were uprooted, giant trees with all of their roots, and like giant slabs of concrete by the boardwalk. Giant slabs of concrete that were just pushed like amazing distances. He said that, I heard another story about someone who has a, 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 a steel garage door that has a big curve in the middle of it from the wind. Steel, a steel door. But this is the detail that, that I, I want to leave you with because it, 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 I thought it was so beautiful. Uh, I guess the storm hit on Tuesday and Wednesday. Right, so the idea of leaving your home then was not even to be considered. Plus, he lived right by the... Uh, Monday and Tuesday. Okay, so maybe this was Wednesday then. Um, the, uh, the, and he lived right by the ocean. He lives in a community right by the Atlantic Ocean in Far Rockaway. So, uh, so remember, he's in his 70s, okay? So the first day that you, you could leave your house... No electricity at all. He, it was morning minion. So what do you do? Right? So, again, a man is in his, in his 70s. No electricity in the neighborhood whatsoever. Took out his flashlight. <laughs> got dressed. Took out his flashlight. Walked in the darkness to shul. And there was a big... They had a, he told me they had a big minion. Not just a minion. They had a big minion. Everyone had woken up, taken out their flashlights, and walked to shul. And they lit candles in shul so that there would be light. And they prayed. <coughs> Bless him. And, man, that says it, doesn't it? That says it. Yeah. I mean, you wonder, how, how have we survived for thousands of years? Exactly that. Exactly that. You know, um, I think uh, Dennis Prager was saying this, I'm not sure, but, but uh, I guess he had had a question, he's telling the story about someone else, someone had some big 
theological question about God, like, you know, like some bottom line question that, you know, whatever it was. And he asked his rabbi and the rabbi said to him, you know what? I don't I actually don't know what the rabbi said to him, whether he said uh, I, I don't whether he couldn't answer his question or whatever it was. But here was the part that stayed in my mind. He said, you know what? Let's say he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know, but it's time for Mincha. <laughs> Meaning to say, all right, listen, you have your question. I hear your question. I don't even know if I can answer your question, but I know what I have to do. It's Mincha. Let's dive in Mincha. And so this is how we get through life. This is how we survive. You know? We have questions, God willing, we should get them all answered. Right? We have needs, God should bless us and fill all of our needs that we don't have any more needs and we only have simchas. But until then, if it's chakras, get your flashlight and turn it on. All right. (laughs) 